One of the earliest, and some say the first, science fiction films in movie history is the French film A Trip to the Moon. Released in 1902, the film was written, directed, edited, and produced by French illusionist Georges Melius, who also starred in the picture. Widely celebrated in its day for its production values and special effects, the production staff included just two camera operators, a costume designer, and an art director. Contrast that to today's blockbuster films, which employ thousands of highly specialized artists and cutting-edge technology to create stunning visuals that push the envelope of what's possible. How films of today get made is an awe-inspiring mix of collaboration and a constant drive for process and technical innovation. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If When, my guest was Todd Bush, first assistant editor at Marvel Studios. Todd's career as a film editor and visual effects editor has spanned three decades and has seen him assigned to some of the most iconic film franchises in movie history, including films in the Star Wars, Spider-Man, Terminator, and Fast and Furious franchises. He recently finished an assignment as the first assistant editor on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and he shares with us a behind-the-scenes look at the incredibly complex mechanism of teams and technology necessary to pull off these marvels of cinematic entertainment. Well, Todd, thank you so much for joining me. I know you've been uh, really busy lately, just finished wrapping work on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And, you know, before that, you were working on some of the, the Marvel shows and the DC shows like Peacemaker and then, of course, you know, WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So really excited to be able to sit down with you and, you know, get an inside look on how movies are made and all the, the hard work that goes in on that. So thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks for having me, Paul. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Well, so let's kind of dive in. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you do at Marvel Studios? You know, you're an assistant film editor and like give us an inside look on how movies get made. So my work at Marvel comes through being hired for hire by the union as a local 700 member, the editors actually hire their assistants and the studio and director, particularly in this case with James Gunn, hires his editors. So it's kind of like, you know, once our guy, mine being editor Fred Raskin, gets hired and has the job, then I follow suit and jump on and start getting things ready for us to go. Usually we start about a week before production. In this case, because Fred Raskin works, he, she's been working with Jane since the first Guardians movie. So for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And we were finishing Peacemaker. Um, and, and actually, to be honest, uh, Fred came off of Suicide Squad, which they were editing right through the pandemic. And we jumped on Peacemaker, which James wrote during the post-production on Suicide Squad. Hmm. And he, Fred was finishing the mix on Suicide Squad and editing the uh, first couple of episodes of Peacemaker. And it actually, it, it, it got to be so much so that he were, was throwing a few scenes to me on the second episode because James had wanted him to focus on the first episode to lock that one up. So we kind of had a template for what that series was going to be like. 
Um, so I got to do a little bit of cutting on, on that second episode of Peacemaker. Then during Peacemaker, of course, we were getting ready, doing screen tests and things for Guardians. Um, so Peacemaker was about a year long. And at the end of that, we were tailing off into Guardians, which, which started at Marvel. So again, it's like all these things were going on in the background. But for me, I was able to jump from, say, HBO Max over mm-hmm. to Marvel Studios. And I had worked there before, so I, I know the, the host team and a lot of the people over there, and particularly visual effects, because I had my previous experience had been on, say, Falcon and the Winter Soldier was previs leaning towards visual effects. And WandaVision and Spider-Man Homecoming were both in visual effects. Mm-hmm. So this was a slight change for me. But what was exciting was that I got to be part of the team with working with visual effects. I kind of feel that there's sometimes a bit of a, it's an interesting mix between visual effects and editorial because the work that the editors do greatly impacts visual effects. So as the process goes, both turnovers and lock sequences necessary for visual effects to turn over to their vendors is imperative and fundamentally based on the editors locking these sequences. So the better and the closer that these two departments can work, mm-hmm. um, the better for the, for the project. And, and quite frequently, because both departments have their own deadlines and, and you know, the editors are not always looking forward to making a, a turnover date weeks after a year and a half long post-production uh, schedule in the terms of like Guardians of the Galaxy, the first thing that was shot was the motion capture flashbacks of, of Rocket. Mm-hmm. And um, not to give anything away, but there's a lot of backstory to Rocket in the movie. Right. And the first two days of the shoot were actually slated as the test shoot days. Um, we shot the uh, sequences all on a mocap stage. Uh, for Rocket. And those sequences had to be turned over. So just for context, production started in 2021, uh, November 2021. And those sequences needed to be delivered to Framestore by May, I believe, of 2022. Mm-hmm. So um, that was just mainly like, like about a month after production ended. So so those things had to be locked and delivered and and Framestore was going to start working on them before we were um, anywhere near a first assembly. So it's those kinds of things that impact these departments and, and sometimes create stress between these two departments. And this project was phenomenal in that we worked very closely with the uh, visual effects department and, and successfully. And of course it helps because we had a great lead over there on, um, uh, Steph Soretti was the visual effects supervisor mm-hmm. and Susan Pickett was the producer. And, and they've both done a number of Marvel films. They were very prepared on set and with their all their delivery material mm-hmm. and the vendors they've worked with. So needless to say, we all got along really well. And I, it was a really nice journey with, with that whole team. 
Well, and I've got to imagine that like you've, you've have in your career, you've also served as a visual effects editor too. Am I if I'm not mistaken? So I'm assuming that that helps inform some of the work that you do as a film editor and vice versa. You know, you understand those disciplines and how they, they work together. You know, I know enough about just kind of having seen how some, you know, films have come together and how they're, they're, they're chopped and cut and everything and, and film editing. And it really is an art to be able to draw forth the story, you know, from like, I, I think sometimes like hours and hours of footage, you know. So um, you talk to us a little bit about what it's like dealing with the pressure of working on like, you know, a huge Hollywood blockbuster project like this. And, you know, you're getting like all this footage and, and whatnot and visual effects footage and things. What's it like to try to pull that all together? Knowing there's a, there's a lot of money there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot riding on this. Mm -hmm. Well, we have a great crew uh, that, that I got to work with and I'll start off uh, just naming them. Uh, the editors were uh, Fred Raskin and Greg mm -hmm. Daria. And, and they also were two of the three editors on Peacemaker. So we had a, a good run. And, and, and those two have actually worked together for a number of years. Greg assisted Fred years ago. So I've kind of stepped into Greg's shoes now, assisting Fred. Then my co-first assistant was Jeff Steinkamp. Mm -hmm. And then we also had two seconds which Aaron Lindhorst and Madeline Kushner and Mary Ma was our apprentice. We also, during production, we had three uh, second assistants back in Atlanta that were just handling dailies, which actually was really nice because they were three hours ahead. So by the time I got into the cutting room, uh, a majority of that work was already done. And those assistants were Rick Ives, Andrea Nieto, and Jenny Lindemuth. So, um, so we had a good team in editorial. Then to your question um, about how we, how we get these big Hollywood movies made, editorial is the hub of all of post-production. So that includes visual effects, sound, mixing and editing, music. All the departments look to us to deliver the current edit. And we have to track both the, the visual effects as things are changing and the edits and which version of edits have gone to all these other departments. Um, and as, and as they change, we have to update all those departments regularly. Also, uh, like another thing that was happening, which is a part of sound is ADR frequently. James would be changing a few lines, adding some lines um, that were necessary for the, the storytelling of the, of the movie. And, those would be added to our database of, of uh, material that needed to be re-recorded for technical issues. And we also know the, the actors also do efforts and other kinds of things. So we're constantly collecting which actors need to do which sand, which um, lines and then scheduling all that. So there's all, all this that's going on behind the scenes that's in just a constant flux and not withstanding all of the visual effects because it, they're constantly doing daily updates to each shot. And early on visual effects on their end, it's a little quieter for editorial. The vendors are developing the look concept art, the 3d models for all of the characters and, and sets and everything. Mm -hmm. And then 
as production goes forward, they start implementing that material into shots. So the first cut of the movie, I would say there's three big sections uh, kind of in the flow of how post-production works. Um, we have production um, when we're receiving all the dailies. Then we have the uh, director's cut mm-hmm. where the footage is assembled and we, for the first time, see the movie all as one entity, one thing. And then once we, you know, we, we have the, the movie, we screen it, we have audience screenings and really tighten the movie. Because I think our first cut of the movie was maybe two hours and 50 minutes. Mm. Uh, the final cut is 2.30 with credits. I think we got it down to 2.20 just from picture in, picture out. Mm-hmm. So that process of, of trimming the movie occurred while we were doing our, our screenings. I think we had six or seven what they call friends and family screenings mm-hmm. at the studio. And then once that movie gets close to being locked, we go into the final phase, which is, you know, the mix and the final turnover. So, I mean, it sounds like let's, let's talk about, let's talk about teamwork for a little bit. And, uh, and I'm amazed at how complex today's filmmaking process is. And so by way of comparison, one of my favorite movies of all time is Jaws. And I love Jaws, you know, and I, I, Verna Fields, who is the the film editor of that movie, like, I mean, she's legendary and she really, she doesn't get the credit she deserves, but I mean, everybody focuses on Steven Spielberg and John Williams, but Verna, like really like her, her hand is all over that movie. I mean, she really brings the story together and like the cuts and things, but the reason I bring up Jaws is, and you know, it's kind of a running, it's kind of a running joke with me and, and one of my daughters, you know, we love Jaws and we watch the end and like you watch the credits at the end of Jaws, there's like maybe a dozen people. I mean, it's like very short credits, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. And you contrast that with today's blockbusters and they, they literally seem to employ thousands upon thousands of people. It's like, it's like a small country you know, basically, you know, so, you know, let's talk a little bit like, you know, we'll, we'll unpack, you know, some of the technical changes that have, you know, how you keep up with new technologies and that sort of thing. But let's first talk about teamwork, you know, and you mentioned all the great people that you're working with, you know, given how complex, you know, today's modern blockbuster is, how have you seen it change over the last 30 years or so that you've been a cinematic professional of like working together and all these different crews and bringing it all together to like successfully bring home a finished product, you know, that's very satisfactory and, and everybody, you know, recognizes like is a great movie. Like, What's kind of the secret sauce of getting all these teams to kind of, in your experience at any rate, you know, get them talking and working together, you know, towards a common goal. As you just mentioned, I've been working in the business for 30 years. And when I started, it was the early 90s, and we were still editing on film at the time. Um, the, the, uh, the system that is used uh, to edit movies these days is Avid. And that didn't come out until 91, 93. In 1993, it kind of took over television. It hit, you know, by storm and was able to handle 
the short sitcoms because of the disc storage issue. That that was something that was new. When I started, I was working for Lucasfilm's Edit Droid company, and what they were doing was putting the data, the media, on laser discs. Um, they'd sync it and transfer it, and then you could edit those. But you could only, you know, do a scene or two, and then you'd have to reload the disc players, and and then you could jump to the next scene. So it really wasn't practical for a feature film when you're intercutting and decide to move this scene from the end of the movie to you know the middle or something. So Avid was a system that accessed multiple hard drives and eventually could store an entire movie. And in my first feature was in 93, the Radioland Murders, which was done up at Lucasfilm. And that was, at the time, it took 40 minutes to boot up our computer. By the time, you know, by, by near the end of the movie, let's say, when, it was, when all the footage was, was available to us. And we could only... Even on the hard drives, we could only see three quarters of the film. So the editor, you know, would let me know we're going to work on, he and the director were going to work on the front half of the movie that day or the back half of the movie that day. Um, and then they did reshoots and, and there were characters that were scattered throughout the movie as reoccurring characters. So I had to put that on a scuzzy hard drive that they could access all the time so that he could intercut that into both halves of the movie. So that's kind of where we started through the years they've integrated the machines so that the avids could be accessed by multiple editors and assistants at the same time and that was something that uh, you know i i was part of the beta testing these the hardware necessary for kind of navigating all these drives and and this kind of began the communication that just in editorial editors would start developing systems where they could they would version their sort of sequences. They would hand off sections to assistants to work on sound simultaneously while they were working on picture. Mm-hmm. And, and then also going out to other departments, the Avid system had very good lists for delivering to sound so that sound departments could be working on stuff and, and this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. So this process has constantly been improved and um to, to the point of, to where today on Guardians, one of the big innovations on this movie was to incorporate sound into the Avid, the sound mix. So once we got into the director's cut and it was decided that um, what normally happens in, in the past is that um, when you get near the end of the movie and you're going to start screening, mm-hmm. we would deliver a cut to in our case, Skywalker Sound, David Acord was our supervisor. And they would receive the reels and edit and mix these reels. Although they're going to, they're constantly evolving, they would start working on them. Budgets and schedules as they are, and because Marvel likes to do multiple screenings there on the lot, we were kind of limited. In fact, they didn't want to do any kind of mixing until we got into the final phase of the film. So from Fred's experience and, and Fred was very, Fred Raskin mm-hmm. talked about the editor was very involved in the mix for Peacemaker because um, James was already working on, on Guardian. So he couldn't be present at the mix. So he looking forward, he knew that James was going to expect 
and prefer a, a 5.1 um, mix for the screenings, you know, the best that we could get out of our, our Avid system. And, and the Avid is now such that you can actually work in stereo. The editors could work in stereo mm -hmm. because that's the format that they deliver edits to, to James, who, who actually was in Aspen prior to him coming out to LA to, to transition over to the DC world. Um, he, he, once they wrapped production in Atlanta, mm -hmm. James got a place up in, in Aspen. So we were working remotely, another something carried over from COVID that James really prefers and likes to work remotely. Um, so that, that was something that we were doing. So he was looking at cuts in stereo and in the background, they're over at Disney studios. We were, um, we had three guys. Well, they were consecutively, mainly because of their schedule moving to and from other other movies. And those guys, I should give them credit. There was uh, Chris Dybul who began the process, and he's actually kind of a trailblazer in doing this process. Um, and then Ian Chase and Ron Ang came in after him. But um, Chris is now working with another editor, Dan Leventhal. Um, mm -hmm. and, and Chris, who on our, so on our film, what the trick was, was these guys who are mainly familiar with Pro Tools, that's the system that's used for editing sound, they had to learn the Avid. And they were editing and mixing in our reels on the Avid. So they had their own space and their own 5-1 setup. And we could turn over a reel to them and they would make a pass or a section of a reel. And mm -hmm. they would make a pass and mix that in 5-1. And then when we got up to a screening, rather than what the old model was, is to lock or latch, uh, you know, a, a reel and turn it over to sound and have them begin working. And as we get, you know, that week prior to a preview or screening, mm -hmm. the edit, the picture edit might change. And those every time it changed, we'd have to send an update to the stage and the stage would have to conform and then the director editor would go to the stage once that reel is mixed and watch the reel. So there becomes this whole other process for them. Mm. All of that was being done in the Abbott. So the guys, uh, the guys, you know, Chris Diebold and uh, doing the sound would mix right there. And, and Fred would be working in the same reel. So he could kind of get an idea in stereo, what the five one was like, at mm. least, you know, where the sound was and the, the, the design effects. But then prior to the screening, he would, they would, um, he, Fred Raskin and, and Greg, the other editor would come in and sit with the sound editors on the Avid and listen to the 5.1 version of that, what they've been hearing at home. But it greatly improved and sped up the amount of time that it took to, to do the sound post. So this, this was a huge innovation. The other editor that's, that's utilizing this process right now is Dan Leventhal. Mm -hmm. And um, he's he finished Dungeons and Dragons, and now, uh, like I, I think I mentioned, that Chris Dybold, who who was was our editor, he's mm -hmm. sound supervisor on this new Beverly Hills Cop sequel that Dan Leventhal is cutting. So it's it's kind of the new wave of um, of, of opportunity for for young um, sound editors to be doing something like that because that's a that's a big responsibility. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean that was that was something that was that was really new and, and made available to like you know to think that years ago when it was so difficult for two 
or three AVID systems to be working in unity. We now had, you know, multiple departments working on the movie simultaneously. It's a, it's a big advance. Well, let's unpack that a little bit, you know, and because I, I think analogous to what we see in other industries, right? You know, there are experts who, you know, they have built their careers around certain technological platforms, certain ways of doing things, right? So then when you come in with new technology, even when it's a, a, a benefit, you know, it's disruptive, right? Because you have to like, there's that that learning curve and you have to like learn how to like not just master the technology, but work it into your workflow, you know, and all of that. And I, I imagine, you know, in filmmaking in particular, especially like the filmmaking that we see today where every year it's like the audience is just, it's never satisfied. Right. You know, it's like, we need the, we need more, we need more, you know, over the top effects and things. And it's like, you've got to continually wow us. So there's like this pressure, I think, for the technology to just always be pushing forward, which then puts pressure on professionals such as yourself to like, keep up with, you know, the new technologies, new ways of doing things, these innovations, like you're you're saying, you know, so what's kind of been your take on that? Like, you know, how do you keep, you know, up to date on these new technologies? And how do you um, contend with potential disruption for your craft and, you know, keep it all in check? Um, Yeah, it's been a challenge since the beginning. And and when I, like I said, when I came in, film was um, in its death throes. And, and the digital technology was was just waiting at the door to come, you know, to come in. And I kind of I, I knew that and and I enjoy making movies. And I knew if I wanted to do that, I needed to learn whatever was the latest, you know. And I feel like early on there was there were competitors, say, for, for post-production. With EditDroid, there were multiple Laserdisc and videotape editing systems. Then once the Avid came out. There was a, a Lightworks system. There, there was a couple of other digitally based systems. And, you know, the, the truth was, is that the Avid had a huge financial influx of cash that gave them a head start. Also, it had that this certain, certain aspects of the, the architecture and the list based system made it a better tool for, as you know, like I said, editing's the, the kind of the hub of all these different departments. In order to communicate with them, you need, at the time, it was you needed to turn over lists. And later on, it just became edits and time code and, and this kind of thing. We, we, we still do change lists, which are in a, in a digital PDF, you know, digital paper format, but they still kick those out of an Avid uh, for departments like music and sound. All of this made Avid the tool that, if you understood what it took to get a movie made, which is communicating with all these different departments, Avid was the one you, you needed to jump on. And so it was, stuff, it was stuff like that early on that I understood mm-hmm. and I would get in, in debates because, you know, with other editors or assistants, because the other editing systems had a nice interface and, and they did. And, and, and certain editors liked the way they, you know, when they're editing the flow of their, their, their work, they preferred this system or that system, but it's just, you have to look at in the long run, what is it that's going to do the job that makes this industry as large as it is now 
manageable? And, and how, how do you communicate with all these departments? And so in that case, it was, it was the AVID. And through the years, there were, there were a number of times where we tried a variety of different things. I tried, you know, in my, each show, I would try and implement something a, a little bit different to try and speed up the process. And what's interesting is, and as we're talking about sound with these guys doing the sound work, you tend to lean towards speeding up a process that eliminates a person in the process because that extra person is obviously having to do an extra task, which takes more time. Right. But then what I've also found is that as the, as the, we streamline the process, there's multiple features, tools, other opportunities for the assistance or sound or visual effects for these other artists to use to feed into the storytelling process. So we have visual effects editors doing rough temp comps and they'll, they'll jump onto After Effects or, or, or other tools to do comps. We have, again, now the sound guys that were helping us do this, the 5.1 mix. They were helping speed up this process and give us a really good sense of in Guardians, I mean, you have all this fantastic sound design and great music from John Murphy. He was developing, you know, he was writing new score constantly. And we, James would listen to it and, and give him notes and we cut it into scenes. So all this is happening simultaneously and kept in check and on track with um, our sequences, versions, and the time code for each reel that's sent out to all these departments. So this is how we're speaking to each other. And at the end of the day, all the visual effects and, and all the music and sound, everything drops into the edit and we screen it. And on the day, it's got to be all in sync and, and happening and working just the way that James wants it to. So the point is, what I found is that as we speed up the process and eliminate people, we create new opportunities for more people to enter into the process. And, and that's kind of like what you're seeing in these credits. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you're seeing where we're going, and actually I, I would say more than 50% of those credits are visual effects houses. So what you're seeing is all the people at these other vendors, these outside companies contributing to the movie and each, you know, each vendor is doing different sequences. And, and I know Marvel, um, Victoria Alonso has been really good. She was the head of visual effects over there at Marvel has been great about being sure that all the artists who perform, you know, who contribute to the movie are in the credits. And that's kind of what you see. So it's a good thing. It's a, it's a cool thing because those artists love to see their name, even though they're a little bit buried sometimes. They're a part of the process and they're a part of the movie and, and they like to see, you know, their names up there on the big screen. But I do think in the long run, the technology has never made it easier, but has created more opportunities hmm. for artists to contribute to the storytelling process. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Well, Todd, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. Um, I know you're, you're in the middle of a, another film editing assignment. So it seems like you, you never rest, you know, there's always like the next movie and the next movie and the next, but uh, I really appreciate you sitting down and, you know, wish you the very best with uh, with Guardians Three. Uh, you know, it's a tremendous trilogy, and so 
love to see it succeed and, and all the hard work that you and, and all the, you know, Fred and everybody else on the team put in, you know, to kind of bring James Gunn's vision to life. So, so thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Paul. Happy to be here.